Did you know that the optimal state trains yoga therapists? This is something that takes about two years, although some people take up to six years. It really depends on your schedule. And we train you in how to create nervous system regulation, how to help one's mind come into what we call sattva, a place of balance or peace. And during our program, we not only bring that to you personally, but we teach you how to be a professional and bring that to other people. So if you're interested in mental health and nervous system regulation, we would love to help you learn how to become a yoga therapist. You can add it to your skill set if you're a PT or an OT or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a doctor or a mom or a best friend. It doesn't really matter. But the point is we can help you up level your skill set in nervous system regulation and mental balance to the next level. And we'd love to have you join us at our yoga therapy program. You can come to www.amywheeler.com or www.theoptimalstate.com. All right, we hope you'll come and get more information. Welcome to the episode of today with Dr. Carla Marie Manley, who is a clinical psychologist in Sonoma County. And her upcoming book, which will be released in March, 2024, is called The Joy of Imperfect Love. When I first learned of Dr. Manley, I really thought this topic is very much in the realm of yoga and yoga therapy, that we have these different layers of our human system. We have the physical layer, the breath layer, the maybe mental, emotional layer. We have the personality layer, and then we have the more spiritual layer. And one of my teachers, TKV Deskachar from Krishnamacharya tradition, basically says yoga is relationship. You'll know if your yoga is working by watching how your relationships unfold. And his big thing was all of that happens mostly on the personality layer, how you communicate how present you are, if you can be attuned to the other, as well as attuned to yourself while in relationship, that he said it all boils down to the vijnana maya, that's what we call it, the personality layer, some people call it the wisdom layer, but basically your ability to have secure attachment in relationship. We call secure attachment, there's an actual theory that Dr. Carla will talk quite a bit about today called attachment theory, and she's going to take you through the different types of attachment that we were modeled as children. We watched our parents have secure attachment with us or disorganized attachment with us or anxious attachment with us or avoidant dismissive non-attachment with us. We watched our parents unconsciously really. And that as adults, if we don't heal those relational wounds, we move into our relationships with loved ones, repeating those patterns. So this interview, although it may seem very much oriented towards clinical psychology, I actually think it is very much in the realm of yoga and looking at how are my relationships doing? Am I able to communicate my needs? Am I able to securely attach to my children, my parents, my yoga therapist, my students, that this is the heart of yoga, this Vijnana Maya layer. And it's a very, very deep layer, 
very closely connected to the deepest spiritual heart of who you really are. So whether you have been able to have secure attachment in your relationships in this life, or whether that's something you're still working on, I think you're really going to appreciate not only this interview, but also her new book coming out in March, 2024, The Joy of Imperfect Love. All right, let's get started with Carla Marie Manley. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. We're so happy that you're listening today. After the podcast, you might go to the app store for both iPhone and Android and download the Optimal State mobile app, which will help you to track the functions of your autonomic nervous system and find ways to stay in balance. This Optimal State app was created for people just like you to stay in better mental health and physical health. Now let's get started and get right into our guest today. Welcome, Carla. It's so nice to have you with us today. Thank you for coming. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Carla, I had seen some of the books you had written, such as Date Smart and Joy from Fear. And I just think a lot of the things that you care about and write about are very yogic in in nature, even if they aren't directly quoting yoga texts or anything, the concepts are very much yogic. You know, one of the things my teacher TKV Deskachar used to say is that yoga is relationship. So today we have kind of a Valentine's Day special that we're going to share with all of our audience about your upcoming book called The Joy of Imperfect Love, The Art of Creating Healthy, Secure, Attached Relationships. So congratulations on the book, first of all. Thank you so much. It was a labor of love. (laughs) Tell us about that first before we get into the contents of the book, because I don't know if if you haven't written a book, you probably don't know the amount of life force that it takes to pull something from deep inside of you out onto a page in a way that people can understand. So tell us about your process and how that was for you. You know, just with a nod back to my first book, Joy from Fear, that one was my first experience. I've wanted to be a writer for almost as long, or maybe before I wanted to be a psychologist. And when I was in my doctoral program, I really came to terms with how much I had lived a fear-driven life. Mm. It was the antithesis of who I thought I was. I thought I was an empowered, strong woman. And then in my doctoral program, as the world opened up for me, I realized, oh my goodness, I need to find out what held me from following my path, my true path of being a psychotherapist. What held me back? And when I realized it was fear, I made the research of fear, a deep dive into fear. I designed a qualitative and quantitative analysis of fear and then did a lot of work, a lot of research, had a lot of people participate in my research and so grateful to them where I was able to see that not only was my experience not unique to me, of course, but then I was able to realize as I began to work through fear in a bigger way that I could take what I learned and offer it to other people. At first, I thought it would just be as being a more enlightened psychotherapist, but one of my external readers, a phenomenal 
New York Times bestselling author who was so kind to take me on. I said, this needs to be a book. And so mm-hmm. Thomas More, with his encouragement, I then decided to take that three, you know, huge dissertation. It was beyond what I needed to do, but it was so full of love and tenacity. And then I decided to write Joy from Fear. That took me from start to finish about eight years because I had to take a very academic project and my mind was in the academic field and work it and rework it. I honestly don't know other than child rearing that I'd ever worked so hard on something I loved so much until I met that book and that book met me. And it was also my first true experience with being someone who loves yoga. I love yoga. I love it as a practice and a practice for life and really believe in the power of yoga as a way of being. And I realized in writing that book, it was my first experience other than yoga. Yoga was the first time I came to understand my body could be my home and that I had a gift in my body. I had never known that. Mm -hmm. And so being able to see that the way I felt in yoga, where I felt like something was being channeled through me when I could let go of everything else, I realized that that's what the writing process was for me. That when I got out of my own way, something far beyond me would come and write through me. Yes, it's me dedicating the hours and all the time and the brain and the, you know, heart, and spirit going into it. But I also realized that sometimes when I was reading my work or somebody would quote a part of my book to me, I would say, wow, I wrote that. And I realized many times that it was something, of course, far beyond me. So then with my subsequent books, Aging Joyfully came to me. So I used to run a large women's support group and so many of the women of all ages would come in with the same questions, the same problems. So aging joyfully, I was called to write for Mm -hmm. a reason. Date smart. I was called to write. And I love that book because it's about just finding someone to date. It's about loving yourself transforming yourself, knowing yourself. And so that one, again, I was called to write because so many of the people I was working with were struggling all ages, 18 to, you know, 75 were struggling with dating issues. And then with my next book, The Joy of Imperfect Love, I realized, because as a clinician, yes, I'm Jungian-oriented, Carl's Jung work has guided me, depth psychology, but because I'm so passionate, I just love my field, I am always learning and open to new modalities. So I've embraced aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, I'm an EMDR certified clinician, I was at one point working very hard to incorporate yoga into my practice. And actually had some success with yoga in my practice when I was volunteering in a drug and alcohol rehab clinic. But what what I realized is as I embraced new modalities and took more, you know, continuing education, that the field of attachment theory was deeply compelling to me. Seeing how our relationships And it's one of the most well-researched modalities. You know, the work started back in the 50s with Bowlby and Winnicott and some amazing women such as Mary Main and Mary Ainsworth who came after them where they really researched the power of the child-parent attachment and how that is carried into adulthood unconsciously. 
into our adult relationships. And then generation after generation, it's carried on. And many people that I work with or speak with don't believe that their childhood can affect them. They think, well, I'm now a big person. And they don't realize that, yes, you may be chronologically older, but that our trauma sits in our body. Again, you know, going back to yoga, it's one of the beautiful pieces when you're in child's pose or pigeon and you can feel things in your hips and your body trying to move through you and out of you or being breathed into. And I see that as a very lovely metaphor for relationships that often we are in pigeon in a relationship where it's just like, this hurts so much. I just want to get out of this. And yeah, if we become mindful about what's happening, if we learn to attune to the self and then attune to the other person, we must learn how to attune to the self. And that's why it's so beautiful because the attachment mindset is not shame, blame, let's go back and blame mom and dad, no, or caregiver. Life is too short to engage in shame and blame. Instead, let's look at the genesis of these dysfunctional patterns and functional patterns, mm-hmm. embrace the ones that we want to keep. And you can see the parallel with the yoga practice, right? Regardless of what anyone else is doing in the room, I practice often with my eyes closed. Yeah. Really bring my attention inward. And when we are in relationship with ourselves, we sometimes really need to close our eyes to what society is asking of us, telling us to do, so we can tune into the self. And then if we really know that and honor the self, honor our wounds, our strengths, our frailties, work on the wounds that we want to, you know, really breathe into, also hone our strengths then we can continue to evolve. And if we have that mindset in relationships and we have a partner who has a similar mindset, the relationship will always be imperfect because we're just humans, but then it becomes a work of art. It Mm -hmm. becomes a practice of love, a practice of ongoing connection. And, you know, I came from a very dysfunctional background, quite difficult life. And my clients see it and feel it in me is that I get them not on a theoretical level. Yes, of course, on a clinical level, but I get them because I know the imperfection of life. I know the difficulty of life. I know that we can rewire our brains. I know we can rewire our bodies. Mm -hmm. And I believe in what I do. I believe in the healing power of my approach and the approaches of many other therapists. I don't think there's a right or wrong approach. So what the joy of imperfect love is all about is being able to work on the self, work Mm -hmm. creating greater self-awareness, greater emotional awareness in a very non-blaming, compassionate way. And then in all of our relationships, somebody who sees the cover, sees the book might think, oh, well, this is just for people who are married or partnered. Oh, no, 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 no. The concepts in my book, I took great care to make sure, even though, and I say this, that even though a lot of the examples are about relationships, love relationships, all of the concepts can be taken into parent-child work, friendships, Mm. be taken into work relationships. Why? 
because they all have the same foundation of when we create trust and safety in relationships, when we attune to people mm. and see them for who they are, when we show up with dignity, courage, respect, kindness, when we do that, everything changes. And surely we are not every day, we are not going to be the epitome of the person we want to, you know, that wonderful human being. It's because we're imperfect. But then we get to go in an unblaming way and, and create more changes. Mm. The other piece about this book, as is with all my books, I go to the extra work to make sure they all come with exercises. Because as we know with yoga, you can know the yogic concepts, you can know how to practice, but if you don't get on the mat and do the exercises, yeah. it's does no good. And it's the same with the way I work in psychotherapy. I often will offer my clients personalized exercises so that they can take their work with them and use it in the outside world. And it's the same with my books and the joy of imperfect love working on those exercises. It's like, it's not a replacement for therapy, but for someone who's very self growth oriented and relationship oriented, the exercises are there. There's an appendix full of them. And why do I believe in that? Because we can read a self-help book, a self-growth book, and then go, oh, that was a great read. And then it goes on a shelf and our life hasn't changed. Yeah. But if we do the exercises at our own pace, when they feel right, sometimes do them again and again until something feels like it's shifting, then we're giving ourselves the opportunity in a very externally oriented world to really go inside, do some self-reflection, and then make changes that will manifest. They absolutely will. So this may be asking you too much right here on the spot, but could you give us an example of what an exercise might look like? Is it a meditative exercise? Is it a journal entry? What does that mean? It's such a good question. When I start the book, it's as though you're on a ladder and we start at a foundational level and then build on it. I invite readers to get a journal. I say, get this journal can be a notebook. It could be anything it can be made of anything. It doesn't matter. And use it as your companion. So as you're working with the exercises, write them down in the book, put your answers there, put your reflections there. And this then becomes your companion on the journal. And I'm there as a companion through the process, but then you will have something else that you can look back and watch your journey in writing. So an example of an exercise is what is your definition of love? You know, what was your father's definition of love? How did your father show love? How did your mother or your female caregiver show love? And so that's an example of how I work because we want to notice. And that brings a bit of like heartache to me because so many people, when you're raised in a dysfunctional home environment. And I spent six years, you know, working with juveniles on probation, sexual offenders, and seeing their definitions of love. Love equals being put in a closet. Love equals being burned with cigarettes because the people who quote unquote loved them treated them horribly. Love is being molested. And so when we see that my dad didn't love me, somebody might respond, or my mom was never around. Or their definition of what love was being exposed by the mom to pornography at age five and the mom saying, this is love. 
This is what people who love do. This is what they do when they are in love. And that person who's now in adulthood did not feel like an appropriate definition of love. So when we no blame, no shame, start going into these exercises in a gentle way and say, what is my definition of love? Love is being a good girl. Love is being, you know, seen and not heard, whatever it is. Love is being, for some people, their definition of love is love is having somebody want to have sex with me. So we start looking at our definitions of love, the very foundation of where we come from. Love is getting gifts. Love is someone cooking for me. It's not that it's right or wrong, but it starts giving us a lens to understand. If I believe that love is shown, dad used to show love by bringing presents to mom. And I felt loved by mom when she baked me cookies. Well, now we can see that in an adult relationship, I may unconsciously revert to a partner giving me a hug as, no, this isn't love. What love is, is you bringing me a present. Or what love is, is you making me cookies. So it really helps us see, did we have a working definition of love that was healthy for us, that made us feel safe and loved? And then now we get to what? Create our own definition of love. As we become more aware, we're able to say, oh, love is, and this is a lot of the work I do with clients. A lot of clients will come to the place where they say something like this. My definition of love is somebody being attuned to me, someone seeing me, someone being safe with me, someone being emotionally connected to me. All of these different pieces, which is often a very far cry from the definition they had coming in, if they had a definition at all. Yeah, there's so many questions in my mind, but the first thing that occurred to me when you were saying this is for someone that gets locked in a closet and their neurobiology is kind of confusing love with this kind of abuse how do you even help someone untangle that? One of the things that is my privilege as a therapist, such a privilege, is that people show up and tell me these stories. They share them with me and I am their keeper. And then we help them make sense of the stories. Mm. In a very sacred and safe space, they get to tell me what it felt like to them as a three-year-old or five-year-old or 15, whatever it is, we then look at that and say, well, how do you wish it would have been? Mm. And of course, this does not happen overnight. It takes a while to unfold. And then that person, because it does involve a little bit of inner child work, yeah. It can then go back. I'll give you a very sort of a simple and more lovely, less abusive example. A young woman I was working with, always rushing, 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 doesn't make time for herself, doesn't make time for self-care. And I said, well, when you came home from school, how were you greeted? I wasn't greeted. Mom and dad were at work. I was, you know, there was a message on the thing telling me what to do and how to do it and that I'd be in trouble if my homework wasn't done by the time I got home. And I said, okay, well, let's redo that. If you had a child, you had a little child, let's give your little child a name, right? Sunshine. And Sunshine walks in the door. How would you like to greet Sunshine? 
Yeah. This client said, oh, I have no idea. I'd tell her to go get her homework done. I said, okay, so let me give you an example of how I might at this time in my life treat a sunshine. I said, and this is based on many years of me so that no one thinks I'm perfect because I'm not, right? And I said, so if I saw this little child now, I'm modeling for her a way it could be. I would say, hello, sunshine. How are you doing? How was your day at school? And sunshine would come in and I would say, would you like a hug? And I would give her a hug if she wanted one. I said, do you feel like some apples and maybe a glass of milk? And right here, my client starts crying. Yeah. And she says, oh, nobody does this. This is ridiculous. And I said, well, some mamas do this. Some dads do this. Some caregivers do this. And she was just full on crying. And she goes, well, tell me what you think might happen next. And I said, well, then maybe she had to go to the bathroom or maybe she wanted to go change her clothes. I would ask her. And then we would sit down and if she wanted apples, she would have apples or maybe some time to play. And I would be asking her what she wanted. And then I would say, sunshine, are you ready? Is this a good time to start homework? Mama will be right here. I'm going to be making dinner. Or, you know, maybe dad will help you with your homework, whoever's around. And then maybe we can read a book together afterward. And she was just crying, saying, this is impossible. It would never happen. Yet, where she is now in therapy, she's come to see that it's absolutely possible. That we do get to not carry on the patterns we inherited that were dysfunctional. Once we become aware that there are options, choices. No shame, no blame. They did the best they could. They didn't do the best. It doesn't matter. What matters is saying, this is how I would like to show up for myself, for my kids. And so now, even though this client does not yet have children, may never have children, she now does some of these practices in her own life, checking in with herself. What do I want now? Do I want to work on another work project right now? Or do I want to go out and go for a walk? What do I want? So you can notice the attunement to self. That's mm-hmm. a critical part of the process. And going back to kids who have really had a difficult time. I don't work with youngsters anymore under 18 bracket, but so many of them just needed me to be safe, just needed me to talk and let them see that there was a way in the world to be attuned to, to be seen. And I would tell them when they'd come to my office and say, I have four rules here. And they'd go, oh, no rules. And I said, I think you'll like my rules. Show up on time. Be respectful. Be honest. And be kind. That's all you have to do in your therapy with me. And 100% of the time, they would say, I can do that. I can do that. I watched lives transform. I mean, not just through me. I do have to say probation had a great team where I did individual therapy, family therapy, group therapy, and then great officers going into the home. So I don't want to take all the credit for the transformation I saw. It was a group effort. So absolutely, I believe that when we realize that we are all imperfect, And that judgment, comparison, comparing ourselves to images we see on social media, all of that, it doesn't do any good but make us feel small and unworthy. And so I'm really big on learning to go in to find what makes me feel good so I can help other people find that part in them that makes them feel good, not in the sense of good or 
bad, but in I'm in my right place. Well, often you can tell, I believe, in the power of yoga because I will tell people when they're, especially when they're feeling anxious, I said, what's your favorite position when you're seated? Can you just see yourself in some room in your house? What is your favorite position? And often they'll say, well, I don't know, what's yours? And I say, oh, sitting yoga style. Even if I manage it in my office chair, I love sitting yoga style or on the ground. It makes me feel very rooted and calm. And some people will adopt that. Other people will say, on my couch. So, okay, so next time you're in a stressful situation, if you can't sit, actually physically sit in that position because you're on an airplane or something, imagine yourself being there. Feel that sense of safety and security and groundedness in your body. And then use that in that moment to be present to your body, to your breath, to your needs. And so little tips like that that help people what? They're just becoming more self-aware of what makes them feel comfortable. And even if you're having a bit of conflict with a partner, being in a position, a bodily position, you know, that make where you feel safe, where you feel open to dialogue, it all goes so much back to again, being aware of the self. I love what you're saying. It has so many yogic themes woven through probably because you've done many years of yoga, but you know, when someone sees a book about love and partnership and the joy of imperfect love, I think somehow we think that that love is out there. We don't always realize that, and it it sounds cliche, right? that we have to attune to ourselves. We have to bring ourselves closer to homeostasis. We need to feel safe and comfortable in ourselves. So many are looking for those needs to be met outside. And so this approach that I hear you saying of, it is a yogic approach to attune inward and try to do all the things you would do in a loving partnership, try to do them for yourself. And then maybe we have a chance at having a somewhat successful partnership with someone else who's doing the same. I have a new podcast. It's called Imperfect Love. And in the cups that I have designed for it, it gives one of the taglines from the book that says, you do not need to love yourself perfectly to love others well. Hmm. And the reason I picked that for the back of mug, right? And that that particular tagline is it reminds us that we, you know, people will often talk to me, oh, I snapped at my child or I snapped at my partner. And yeah, we won't always be a hundred percent emotionally regulated and the ideal human being. But when we keep working on loving the self, and part of that is forgiving the self when we have a hiccup, learning from the hiccup and moving forward a little bit better the next time. So when we realize, wait, the love, yes, other people can have love for me, but I've got to heal myself. And you're right. It may sound cliche to some people, but I go back to fairy tales where we are raised, and I do have to give a nod to Clarissa Pinkola Estes, because she really has shaped a lot of my beliefs. She's the woman who wrote Women Who Run With the Wolves. Mm-hmm. And there was a time in my life, I was actually in my doctoral program when I found her CDs, and I listened to them like they were food from heaven over and over again, because she really talks about the power of fairy tales 
especially the old one, she gathers a lot of tales about the power they have to transform the self. And one of them is when she talks about Baba Yaga, which we know in a very sanitized, romanticized version as Cinderella. And we are raised in our very romantic society when we look at love to believe that Cinderella means that we meet our other half and that other person makes us live happily ever after. Ah, no, 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 no. Baba Yaga, the unsanitized version, is about finding your halves, your nurturing side, your strength side, incorporating the two of those, the yin and the yang, the male and the female, the masculine and the feminine into yourself so that you can move forward. And in Joy from Fear, I talk about that as the masculine energy is power energy and the feminine energy is nurture energy that we all have. And when we learn to work with both of those, embrace them, then we're not looking for someone to rescue us. We are not looking for someone to be our magic partner. We realize, wait a second, my job is to work on bringing the light and the shadow, the masculine, the feminine, the strength and the nurturing into me. And as I keep working on that, if I meet a partner who is complementary, who is also doing his or her work, now we have something. Now we have this force where it's not just me and other, it's three of us. It's me, it's other and relationship. And then whether or not this couple chooses to have to progenerate, right? If they have this force, this energy of love, what I call imperfect love, moving forward, it's not idealized love. It is imperfect love that acknowledges the need to work. Then if they have children, then they have children who are raised under that umbrella. Mm. And then if they don't choose to have children, then they're modeling this beautiful other-oriented, yes, oriented toward the self for self-reflection, but also oriented to how can I show up for others? How can I attune to others? How can I be on this planet and make this world a better place? Mm -hmm. So it's very much different from how our often overly materialistic culture operates, but I do believe it is a really lovely method for creating healthy relationships with the self and with others. Yeah. You know, it's making me think all the way back to what you said about this attachment theory. I love attachment theory. I think everyone should learn about this. Can you give us a brief overview of it? Because I think when you start to realize that my mother and my father's definition of love or how they tried imperfectly to show me love, that that's going to probably show up in my future connection with another human being. Like that's deep stuff. We should all be looking at that. Those habitual patterns that we learned so young. Oh, true. Amy so true. That's why it's such a lovely paradigm, not only because it's so well researched, but you see it play out in life. I see it play out in my clients' lives and groups I've worked with. And so let's give it just a little overview. So a child is born and the caregivers are there. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, foster parent, somebody. Very early on, that child 
birth forward is learning, am I seen? When I cry, does someone respond? When I am upset, is someone holding me? And that's at the very early days. Mm-hmm. And then child, you know, grows and grows. When I fall, is someone there to pick me up? Am I warm? Are my needs attended to? When caregivers were not raised themselves to learn, wait a minute, let's pick up baby, baby's crying, let's feed baby, baby's hungry, baby's sad, baby wants to be held. When they don't know how to do that, they are going to let maybe get rageful, maybe lock the baby in a room, maybe force food down baby's throat, whatever it is, maybe abuse baby. Whatever it is, that child is already learning. This behavior is either making me feel secure Mm -hmm. or insecure. I am feeling safe or unsafe. And so by about 18 months, that child has these patterns of either feeling secure or insecure deeply embedded in them. And a Mm -hmm. child's brain is growing so quickly and absorbing so much that the child is deciding, is the world a safe place for me or an unsafe place for me? And then the child then by about 18 has selected, if mom and dad have different or caregivers have different attachment styles, by about 18, the child has decided unconsciously, this is all unconscious, this is my preferred style. Mm. And so there are different terminologies used, but I'll use some of the more common ones. So the child may be very disorganized. Mm-hmm. and show up in relationships in very disorganized ways. Sometimes this, sometimes that. The child may be very preoccupied. Some people call anxious attachment. The child may have another style called an avoidant style, also called dismissive, because mm-hmm. there are different styles for childhood and then adulthood. But basically, those three styles that are subsets of the insecure style. The disorganized style is, I want to be with you. I don't want to be with you. I'm happy. Oh my God. No, 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 no. Now you're making me really mad. So very disorganized. But the avoidant person or often called dismissive, avoidant with relationships, that person is more like what I call the lone wolf. I can handle life alone. I don't need you. You want to share my life? You're on your trajectory. I'm on mine. So that's the more dismissive style. The preoccupied style, which is the anxious person, is always consumed with the relationship. Am I safe? Am I not safe? Is the person cheating on me? Is the person going to show up? Am I going to be abandoned? Am I not going to be abandoned? At the root of all of them is insecurity. It just, how does it manifest? Now, you might think that each style is very discreet, that you're one and not the other, but some of them absolutely bleed into others. Someone can have, you know, pieces of the pie be, you know, in their style, but you can have people who are extremely, their behaviors are extremely emblematic of a particular style. We see a lot of that with, in particular, the dismissive style. 
the avoidance style because for that person, they may very much want to be in a relationship, but they learn very much that relationships are not safe. And the other interesting piece, and I have a whole seminar on it because it just fascinates me. You can, what styles pair well together? Your listeners might be wondering. Avoid and avoidant can do very well together. Why? Because they're on railroad tracks and they're just going along life like two roommates. And for them, that's great. Not much emotional connection. Hey, they serve each other's needs in whatever way. Sometimes though, the railroad tracks turn outward and they go true their own ways. So that's more what I call convenience shifts. We often see when there are two dismissives together. If we have a dismissive and an anxious, no, not a good match because the dismissive is running and the anxious is following. And the dismissive is going off over here and the anxious is only getting more and more distressed because why aren't you loving me? You're abandoning me. You're scaring me. So that's not a good match. Two anxious people together, they can either drive each other crazy or they can really become so enmeshed that they're like each other's life vests. And for some that works. And then we have the disorganized. Disorganized doesn't really pair well with anyone because they're just so unsettled. The mm. secure person can generally pair, meaning when I said with the disorganized, they can't pair well with anyone but the secure because the secure can pair well with any of them if they have the patience and the desire to help that person what? Earn secure attachment. And that's the beauty of attachment theory, that we are not stuck with an insecure style. And this is where I really love the message of the joy of imperfect love, because it gives hope. It allows us to see that we're all imperfect. Yeah, you may have some attachment issues, but if you do your work and meet a partner who wants to do work with you, you can earn secure attachment. And why does the partnership help? Because it is in our intimate relationships, not usually our work relationships or our friendships, that our biggest always get triggered. Yeah. And so if we have a partner who instead of using our always to make us get really off kilter, if they see that we're a bit dysregulated, not their responsibility, but they might show up and say, oh, I see how that comment I made really hurt you. I'm sorry. May I give you a hug and apologize? Right there in that moment, that rupture touched a wound, but then created the opportunity for healing that rupture, which likely has its roots in childhood. It's fascinating. It really is. And that a securely attached person can pair with any of them. If yeah, they're you said, willing to have the patience to kind of work through it. And do you think, can this work, I'm going to call it relational wounding, can it be repaired similarly in a therapeutic relationship through the therapeutic alliance? You got to the next piece, which is absolutely, it is the therapist for someone who's working from that paradigm. And I would hope all therapists embrace some part of that, right? The therapist needs to be a safe place. And when the therapist shows up, and this goes, actually, this piece goes back to 
Rogers and his paradigm was empathy, unconditional regard, and genuineness. And when we show up with empathy, unconditional regard, and genuineness, plus an awareness of the importance of attachment, my goodness, that is the space where clients can really heal. And I'm a therapist, so I can say this about my profession safely, I think. Yes, it's lovely that it happens in therapy. Does it happen as effectively as it can in a really mindful, a conscious relationship? I think a good therapist can be an excellent guide, especially for couples, but the real work, the real work, that repair, because people still in their minds when they're working with a therapist, they're like, well, you have to like me or I'm paying you for this. Whereas in a love relationship, it is, wait, you're showing up and being present for me and attuning to me because you love me. And that's the piece. That's where the magic is. And I'm going to grab hand out for anyone who's watching by video. It goes, gives just an outline of the attachment where we can see them in adulthood and in childhood because they do show up a little bit differently. And for those who aren't able to see that, the childhood attachment style, of course, we have the secure, then we have the avoidant, we have the ambivalent, resistant, and disorganized. In adulthood, we have the secure or the dismissing, preoccupied, and unresolved. And so there are different terminology, but we often refer directly to the childhood styles, not realizing we're talking about the childhood styles, which are avoidant, ambivalent, or resistant, and disorganized. Thank you for giving this. you. <laughs> and I think, you know, in yoga, we have this thing called svadhyaya, where it means self-reflection, self-awareness, either just within yourself, but also looking at a theory like this and doing your work around it. And I agree with you that it can start to happen in the therapeutic alliance, maybe having a stable person in your life, whether it's a clinical psychologist or just a nervous system that is stable. You know, if the yoga therapist shows up as a stable nervous system, that might be the first time anyone ever felt that in their life to have someone show up for them like that. Absolutely. And you're making me think of this one yoga teacher I had. There was a therapeutic energy to her, of course. But one time I was in child's pose Mm. and she smoothed out my lower back and just smoothed it so it became long. And to me, that is a really lovely parallel to psychotherapy that I couldn't do that to my back. I couldn't do that. My muscle didn't have the memory of it, the knowledge of it, the ability. And so when we have someone, a teacher, a mentor, a psychotherapist who can come and teach us, wait, this is what it feels like. This is how you do that. Then you're like, ah, I get it. I might need to come back and have you do that again or again and again, but you're right. And I had never had that experience in my life. It's why it's stuck in my mind because the touch, 
the attention to detail, the attunement to what my body needed. It's just so beautiful when you have someone attuned to you in life. And that's one of the powers of relationship. If we see our relationships with ourselves, with our children, with our romantic partners, with our friends as works in progress, that let's try to put judgment over here, judgment for self and others, and just show up and see what's before us, attuned to the other person. It's life-changing. So attuned to the other person. I have a really hard question for you around that. Many women that I know between the ages of 25 and 75 are attuning to themselves. They've gone through therapy. They are mentally, emotionally, spiritually feeling fairly healthy and attuned and know what their needs are and kind of articulate that, but they're having trouble finding a partner who's also done all of that and then comes to the relationship. And so many of them are saying, well, if I can't find a healthy partner, then I think I would rather just be alone. What do you think of that? Is that something you see in your practice? That's a really good question. And I think my personal perspective, and I love people of all genders, but I do believe that women are ahead of the curve because they are raised, when I was talking about the nurture energy and the power energy, men in our society are raised to focus on power energy. Mm. They are raised to focus on that. Women are raised still to this day to focus on nurture energy. And so we are used to tuning in to others. And I think that men are getting increased awareness as are women women are saying hey i want some empowerment Uh, yeah i like the nurturing thing but i want some power too and now it's a time for men to realize wait a second i've been power oriented i got the house i got the car i got the bicycle riding down pat whatever it is but i don't really know much about me get this and this is just a beautiful way to look at it for me I talk about emotions a lot, and I come from the five emotion paradigm, joy, anger, sadness, disgust, fear. Women are generally raised to be okay with a non-emotion called okay. I'm fine. (laughs) And joy. Uh Women are also allowed a modicum of sadness. Not too much. Anger? No way. If you're angry, you know, you're an expletive immediately. Men are raised to think they're allowed to be okay. And they're allowed to be angry. That's it. And that I really realized that over the years of working with people and some of the work I do, a lot of the work I do, it really came to me when I was working with juveniles on probation, that they only knew anger. It was all that was modeled, all that was okay. They weren't allowed to cry, to be sad. Think about this. When we raise our children and they fall off a bicycle, how often did I pick up my kids and pat them on the back and say, don't cry, don't cry. What am I telling my kids? I didn't mean to harm them, but I was saying, don't cry. Sad. When we think about how much we do those kind of behaviors unconsciously, or let's hope that was the worst I did, but now we see that men are told, you know, we hear in the lingo, man up, don't be a sissy, don't be a girl. What are we telling them? 
We are telling them, don't feel, don't show your emotions. And then when we get behind closed doors with our romantic partners, we expect them to be all lovey-dovey. But society has told them for all their lives, don't show your emotions. That's sissy. So we can't expect men to have evolved into emotional awareness if we're not willing to make it okay. It's a society. So it's a societal issue in my book. Not that we want people of all genders, you know, crying on the ground 24 hours a day. That won't get us anywhere. But we do want to be able, which is a huge piece in my book. It's about let's watch how our thoughts, feelings, mindsets, energy, and actions have an interplay all day long. And so for women who are feeling like, wait a minute, I'm evolving, I'm doing my work, and I can't find a good match, hold out. If you want a partner, if you don't want a partner, go be with your girlfriends. Do what you need to do, be with who makes you happy. And I do know some women who have decided to do that. But if you really want a partner, look for someone who wants to do the work. They may not be there yet. But if they want to do the work and are serious about doing the work, they may be a person who's just on the cusp of saying, I'm tired of sacrificing my nurture energy side. They may not even know what they're talking about, just to be the stud guy, just to be the strong guy. No, I want to be all of me. We need to give the men in our lives permission to be sad, to be more than angry or okay. So I think again, but my caveat to women and to men is if you find a partner who looks like they're like a good fit, accept, make it really clear. Say, hey, I'll try it with you, but I need you to do your work. I need you. I want you for me, for you to want to. You may need this, but they must want to. You may need certain things for them to be part of your life in an ongoing way, but they have to want to for them. They have to want to do the work for them to show up as a more whole human being on the planet. And the way I look at it is, Amy, is there's so many things inside all of us. You know, the sadness, the joy, the delight, the thousands of the feelings that come from all of our emotions, right? And why wouldn't we want to explore all that? Why would we want to be pigeonholed as the good girl or the production-oriented male? No, I want to keep finding pieces of me. And so, you know, listeners, if you find someone who's interested in finding all the pieces of them, it can actually end up being a lovely fit because here's this. This is not a secret. I don't talk about myself much, but I can say that my husband... I have grown so much in my relationship with him because I was quite centered and strong in my own way. But what he brought to the relationship, that roughness made me work harder. Now he was doing his work and had to do his work, but it also made me work on parts of myself, edges that would have never been pushed the way he has been able to push me back to my center. Much like in yoga practice, if we're in a room and we're practicing in stillness, it's great. Do crow pose, do you know all these things. But you go out onto a rock near a lake where the wind is going and on and on, another thing altogether. And that's what it's like if you have someone in relationship 
where it's maybe not as smooth as you might prefer, but you still get, it works your core. Oh man, does it work your core? Yeah. I think that is a beautiful place for us to come to a close. But before we finish, I would love to show your website, which is www.dr. Carla Manley, so D-R-C-A-R-A-M-A-N-L-Y.com. And how could people get in touch with you? Do you do private sessions online? Do you give workshops? How can we be with you? Okay, you can be with me through my website. You can, you know, contact me and send me an email. You can subscribe to my newsletter, which goes out once a month. You can listen to me on my podcast. Even my clients love to listen to my podcast. They say it's like being with me. But my client wait list is a bit long and I can only of course work with clients in the state of California but I also do my very best to respond to all emails and you can email me through my website because I do really love hearing from people and the other piece about my website if you go into the section where my books are listed there are free worksheets that are if you scroll down under each book there you go there is where it says as a gift of encouragement there you go so you get to download absolutely free worksheets that are based on the topic of that particular book. And this is a really good way to see what some of the exercises in my books look like, because this one, the one that's on the screen right now is about self-esteem, learning what self-esteem is, learning what internal messages might be, lowering your self-esteem. So it's a fun way that's absolutely free to get some nice, gentle self-work done. Mm. Thank you so much. I don't know about the rest of the listeners, but I'm so excited about your upcoming book, which we think will come out in March, 2024. It's March 5th, 3524. The Joy of Imperfect Love. And I just want to thank you for spending this time with us today. Thank you. It has been such a great conversation. I'm so appreciative. Terrific questions, terrific energy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Carla for taking us through this beautiful episode today. So much food for thought. And I just want to highlight and review what Carla said, that the foundation of a securely attached relationship starts with trust, safety, secure attachment, attunement, dignity, courage, kindness, and emotionally connected. Those are the things that we are hopefully working towards in our partnerships, but also to ourselves. Do you trust yourself? Do you feel safe within yourself? Do you have dignity for yourself and courage? Are you kind to yourself? Are you attuned to yourself? And are you emotionally connected to yourself? I think that's one of the beauties of yoga is that we can use our practice both on the mat and off the mat to work on these foundations of healthy, secure relationship with ourselves and with another. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be that you have to 
figure it all out with yourself before you can come into connection with another. I think as Dr. Carla said, a lot of times if you have someone that's willing to do the work and wants to do the work for themselves, and you also want that, you can find a way to connect with that person deeply and kind of use the relationship as a way for each individual to find a way to trust themselves and find safety and be attuned to self within the relationship. So thank you for listening today. It's been our pleasure to bring you this Valentine's week episode, and I hope you'll continue to listen. We would love to have your support by giving us a review on wherever it is that you listen to your favorite podcast. You can also help us out on Patreon if you'd like to be involved in supporting this podcast. All right, everyone, have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. We love to give you the gift of this podcast each week, and we'd love your support. You can support us through becoming a Patreon member. You can download the Optimal State mobile app and join as a member of the mobile app community. You can give us a great rating on the platform that you listen to this podcast on and many other things that would help us. Contact us if you'd like to be of support. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to our continued relationship with you. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.